Thank you, Diane. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Titus. If you're following in the chairback Bibles that are provided for you, that's page 998. The book of Titus will be in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 8. And the title of the message this morning is Living God's Mission in the World. But before we read the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that our hearts would be united to you by your spirit. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would increase our, our understanding and increase our, uh, our knowledge of your, your, your calling in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would lead us and teach us by your spirit today. Lord, that you would make our hearts and our minds sensitive to your will and to your direction. And Lord, as we have sung already this morning, would you feed us on your word today? Lord, would you nourish our souls? Would you strengthen us, Father? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you encourage us, Lord? Would you admonish us in our sinfulness? And Lord, would you be exalted in this place? That's our desire, that you would be exalted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would illuminate our minds to comprehend and our hearts to love your word and strengthen our lives to live your word out. So, Lord, it's my prayer that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The theme of the text this morning is godly living and good works. And there's a balance that the Apostle Paul has struck for Titus as he's speaking to the churches of Crete. And so we find this letter, this epistle of Paul the Apostle writing to one of his disciples that he's left behind on the island of Crete who is to set in order elders in the churches in order to, uh, to keep order and in order to teach the churches, to teach the believers what right living according to godliness looks like. And so this morning I, I want us to see that we've been given new life in Christ that's to be lived out through good works. I think that's the intent of the passage that we're looking at this morning. A few weeks back in the spring, we held an equipping class called for the life of the world. And the central premise of the class was concerned with this question, what is our salvation for? The answer, for the life of the world. And this, in essence, is what Paul is speaking to Titus about for the churches on Crete, on the island of Crete. Their salvation is for the life of the world. One writer said the believers in the Cretan churches lived in a culture that was hostile to the gospel and corrupted by moral sin at every turn. And so last week we saw that Paul contextualized the gospel by exhorting and admonishing those believers to live distinctly different lives. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do a few things. One, renounce ungodliness live world, uh, and worldly passions, and to live in this way, to live self-controlled, 
to live upright and to live godly lives in the present age. In other words, for the churches, for the people of Crete, they were to live specifically with an evangelistic outreach in their life in order for the gospel to make an impact in the present age. And so Paul's focusing on virtuous living, right living, because it, it draws such a contrast to the island of Crete and to the people of Crete. So the culture that we live in today, I think, can be described in a similar way. Hostility to the gospel is a present reality. The absolute claim of Christianity to be the only way to God is mocked and scoffed. Moral corruption headlines all the newspapers, most news broadcasts. Sin is a dirty word that causes a knee-jerk reaction of repulsion when it's spoken in public. Everyone does it. No one wants to claim it. And if we're going to display the posture of authentic Christian living, as we were challenged last week and even this week, we as the church, as individuals who make up the church, must understand God's call to mission in the world. Last week, we said we contextualized this idea in four practical ways. First, we said we're to reclaim the purity of God's sexual ethic. That deals with self-control. We are to live lives of self-control. That means the church needs to stand up and say that God has given this gift of oneness to His people as a gift. And this oneness, this intimacy within marriage is to be confined to that marriage relationship. And so it impacts every area of life. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, just quickly Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, they're all exhorted to this quality, self-control. And so this issue is a pervasive issue today. There's a homosexual agenda that's being pressed today. There's pornographic industry that's being pressed today. There's human trafficking that's being uh, being that's happening today. All of these areas are areas in which we today in this present age are to contextualize the gospel, to live out the gospel, to to invest in these areas, to seek to make a difference. And one of the primary ways we say we do that is through strong, healthy marriages. And so as as married couples, we we need to teach young children in our homes this idea, older men, older women teaching younger men, younger women in this truth, in this reality. Secondly, we said that we need to realize that abortion is an image issue. This deals with self-control, yes, because abortion is one of the, the, uh, the results of lack of self-control, of enjoying, or, or not enjoying, but di- diving into a distortion of sexual ethic, of purity of God's sexual ethic. But secondly, it, it's an issue of justice. That we as a church are to take a stand and advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. So this issue of being upright, righteous, just in our dealings. But thirdly, contextualizing, we, we must learn to be a neighbor to the foreign our land, right? This is a way that we contextualize the gospel today. As many immigrants, illegal aliens are coming into our country. How are we as a church to contextualize the gospel? We are to reach out to them, I think, and we do that through our ESL ministry and through various other ways. And then we said, fourthly, in our various vocational callings, this deals with godly living. The businessman gets together with other businessmen and understands how he's to use his business to leverage the gospel. The teacher 
gets together with other teachers to understand how they might leverage the classroom to maximize the impact of the gospel. The architect does the same, so on and so forth. Homemakers do the same thing. They get together with other women and and discuss how, how they make the gospel the center of their home. And so these are ways in which we contextualize the gospel today in our present day. And so the posture of authentic Christian living is to look missional. We are to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, follow along as I begin reading. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so those so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So first, I I want us to see this morning the posture of authentic Christian living calls us to, to a missional way of living. A missional way of living. Paul exhorts the, Cre- the, the church, the Cretans in the churches in verses 1 and 2 to remember that they're a community with responsibilities to the larger society. And so he tells Titus, remind them. In other words, call to mind what is already known by them. They know this. We know this. But there's a need to continually remind ourselves of our missional way of life. First, he says, with respect to government, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In other words, they're to be model citizens. You know, from the earliest age, no one teaches our children how to rebel against authority, right? In fact, we've got to teach them the opposite. We've got to teach them how to submit to our authority, submit to our authority. Because it's ingrained within their DNA. It's hardwired into us. It's the brokenness of our humanity. We have to teach our children what it means to be under the authority of parents. And then as a result of that, show them what it means to be under the authority of God. And it's the same thing. It works the same way on on a big scale. As model citizens, they're to be a people who are in submission and under authority of another. Namely, the government is what Paul is telling Titus. So they did this by paying taxes, by obeying the laws. They did this by seeking the welfare of the city. This isn't a new concept for believers. 
I mean, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, 7, the people of God were in exile, and he tells them, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. They were to do this for two reasons. The first reason was it demonstrated faith in God, that even during exile, God remained sovereignly in control. And secondly, by doing this, by living this way in submission under authority, the deeper needs of the city would be addressed. And as the church lived out its missionary life in the world, they would impact those who lived in the world, those who lived in the city. And so we see that a key characteristic of the posture of authentic Christian living is submission to authority. You see, placing myself in submission under authority, it demonstrates my faith in God's sovereignty. It demonstrates my faith that God is in control. And get this, it involves me in God's redemptive plan of creation. So this is how the church witnesses to God's reconciliation for the world. This is why Paul highlights this. They are to submit to rulers and authorities. You see, we're not, we're not revolutionaries as Christians. We're not anarchists. No, we are to live in a redemptive way. We are to live reformationally in the world. We as believers, the church, are reforming that which has been distorted in the world. And we do this through our faithful lives by submitting to the authorities. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. The missional calling is not only to be lived out with respect to government, but it's also to be lived out with respect to all people Being ready for every good work is qualified in four ways. Look at verse 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is hard, right? I mean, that's a hard list, right? I mean, to live that way, to speak evil of no one. Uh Uh-oh. I've done that. We've all done that, right? How often do we realize the words that we've spoken after we've said them were even, if we reflect on, were manipulative and and, and serving our own agenda, maybe? We're to speak evil of no one. This is the word for blaspheme. In fact, the Apostle James in James chapter 3 says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? The answer is no. So we're to speak evil of no one. We're to avoid quarreling. This speaks of avoiding those who are looking for a fight, certainly. I think we, we look in chapter 3, verse 10, to see what, what, he, what Paul tells Titus. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I don't know about you, but... I don't have time in my life for divisive people. I don't have energy in my life for divisive people. Then why in the world would I want to be one? Why do I want to be a divisive person? 
So the way we live matters. It imp- the, the witness that we give off is significant. And so that's why he's reminding them, reminding us, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. In other words, in a, in, be gentle. Considerate of others. How do we approach those who have a different perspective on politics than we do? Are we gentle? Are we ready to blast them? Are we at a point where we say we just can't see eye to eye? We get out of our way? How do we approach those who disagree strongly with our perspectives? Maybe those who malign us because of the gospel. What about those who speak ill behind our backs? Are we gentle? He says to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Meaning that we give a positive demonstration to show. We give a positive demonstration with our speech and with our actions. You see, this is the way the believer is called to live. And what happens when we live this way? Well, it sends a clear message to the world. This demonstration gives a visible gospel witness to the world as people are looking on. It's the call to being upright. To having self-control. To living godly lives. Now, if this standard of conduct sounds unattainable for you, the good news is you understand how impossible it is to live this way. Because it is impossible for us to live this way in and of our own strength. The bad news is it's impossible for you and I to live up to the standard of God's calling for mission in the world. Hear me out, believer. You can't do it. You can't do it in and of your own strength. So here's the question. How do we do this? How do we live in this way? That's our second point this morning. It requires a Holy Spirit enabled way of living. Verses three through seven, we see this. But first, let us understand why it's impossible. Give your attention to verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What's Paul describing here? He's describing our condition before Christ. We were ruled by our own way. We were anti-God and we rejected God's wisdom. We were foolish. Right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were deceived and blinded from our own sin and from the truth and the knowledge of God. Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion says the human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks. It is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. That describes the human condition, doesn't it? That describes the internal seat of our hearts that we want no one else to see. We don't want anyone to read us. Deep down, we don't want them to know the intrinsic wickedness that's in our hearts. He says, says we're enslaved to various, many, many, many passions and pleasures. Our own way justifies our own pursuits and it enslaves us to lives of sin. 
Self is at the center of our lives, making us to be the center of our own existence. And because of this, the curse of the fall of mankind is manifested within our own lives. We want to be God of our own lives. We want to pursue our own courses in life. We rebel against God's authority. We don't want to submit to God's authority. And while thinking all the while that we were throwing off the chains of slavery by not submitting to God, the reality is we're blinded to see that he is the only one who holds the key that can truly unlock us from the the, the chains that enslave us, the chains of sin. He's the only one who can unlock us from the chains of slavery. So he says we're passing our days in malice and envy, speaking of the inward wickedness of our hearts. You see, this inward wickedness of our hearts, it it leads outwardly to destructive relationships, to destructive behavior. The beginning point of the new life in Christ, then, involves recognizing that life outside of God's influence and grace is destructive and it collapses under the weight of hatred and the weight of frustration. You ever been around somebody who speaks ill of others all the time? Malice and envy, they, they're unable to obtain and continue to have relationships because they're always speaking evil of others and creating dissonance between them and other people and sparking hatred, sparking frustration. The bad news is we're sinful to the core. And we can't live a life worthy of entering God's kingdom. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. In verses 4 through 7, he reminds us of the good news. And the good news is who we are in Christ. In verses 4 through 7, we see this. But verse 3, if it, it highlights our inability to come to God, our inability to live up to the standard of God's mission in the world, as we see in verses 1 and 2. So in verse 4, what does God do? God comes to us read verse four but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared that is Christ God being true to his good character and love for mankind he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he accomplished what we can't accomplish he saved us and look what it says not because of works done by us in righteousness it's important that we get this order right Salvation comes and then good works follow. We aren't saved because of our good works. No, we're saved to good works. And so our salvation is for the life of the world. He saved us according to his mercy. Mercy is, is I get what I don't deserve. What I do deserve, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? We deserve eternal condemnation. But God gives us Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. This is the epiphany, the appearance of Christ. God in the person of the Son stepping down into our humanity. And so here's what he did. He saved us. What I want you to notice about verses 4 through 7, it should be this way in your English translation. It's one sentence. It's one long sentence that's packed thick with rich theology and when he says that he saved us this is the main verb of this verse God is the principal actor he is the one who acts 
to come to us. He saves us. In fact, if we were reading this literally, as it is written, we would read verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. It's significant because it tells us how He saved us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is a rich metaphor. By the washing of regeneration. It's, it's as if he's speaking of that which happens even in, in a bath. As in bath water washes away dirt from the body, so the filth of our sin is washed away by regeneration. That's what he's saying here. That's what he wants us to understand. And it means that in coming to Christ, we repent of our sin and we're cleansed. Repentance then is a godly sorrow. It is a godly sorrow where we grieve over our sin. And regeneration, it speaks of that which is made new. And so when we are saved by Him in the washing of regeneration, here's what happens. We are made new. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are made new. And then he says, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking here of new birth. He has given us new life, new birth. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, the religious leader, comes to him and says, says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here's what he's speaking about in verse five. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, it is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to regenerate us, to renew us, to give us new birth. And so verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, our new birth in Christ is possible because of Christ's work on the cross. In that work, he satisfied God's wrath against our sin and he gave us his righteousness and he sent the Holy Spirit to give us new birth. This was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. Joel speaks of this language of the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Joel chapter 2 verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He saved us. He saved us by making us new through a new birth. And in order for a person to enter the kingdom of God, in order for a person to live within the posture of authentic Christian living, here's what must happen first. Salvation and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. You can't do it on your own. 
No one can. It's impossible. If it was possible, Jesus wouldn't have come and died on the cross. But he did. And so Paul's reminding the church. Here's what you got to do, church. Let your salvation prompt good works. Let it be a demonstration to the world. Jesus Christ has justified us. He's declared us righteous in God's presence. He's given us what we don't deserve. That's grace. He's made us heirs of salvation. So the hope for me in confessing Christ is that I can come to him with my sin and my shame in repentance, knowing that I am an unworthy, wretched sinner who is inwardly vile and wicked. And not because of any works on my own, but because of the great mercy of God and the appearing of Christ, I have salvation. And I can come before God, the creator of heaven and earth, and I am filled with his spirit in order to be a messenger on his behalf within this world. Not only am I able to do that, get this church, we are responsible to do that. It is our God-given responsibility. It is the missio Dei, the mission of God within this world. The posture of authentic Christian living is Holy Spirit enabled. The only way for us to live out God's mission in the world is to be filled with the Holy Spirit's power from on high. The posture of authentic Christian living, thirdly, is an active way of living. He says the saying is trustworthy. Meaning, the Holy Spirit-enabled way of living in verses 4 through 7 is a needed reminder for all of us who confess Christ. Here's why. Because day by day by day, we realize how far short we fall in our witness to those around us. And it's not by trying harder in your own strength to be a better person. It's not about relying upon the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's, it's not about relying upon your own work. It's about relying upon the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He has made you new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And for those that have believed in God, he says in verse 8, they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, believer, devoting yourself to good works is your active responsibility in carrying out God's mission in the world. And so this challenge from chapter 2, that we are to live out this life, verse 12, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This challenge to live out the gospel in our present age, in our present world, is a challenge that issues forth for us a responsibility before God. He says these things are excellent and they're profitable for people. Right? This fits in line with Crosspoint's mission statement. Crosspoint exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and the glory of God. Crosspoint's presence is to be a blessing in the city of Baton Rouge. 
And so we remind ourselves that the good works we do are not because of any intrinsic goodness, but because of Christ's goodness in us. We have a message to tell to the nations. We have a responsibility and a life to live before this city, before our co-workers. Listen, this is why we serve local businesses through simple acts of kindness like delivering homemade cookies. Why? Because we want to be a blessing. We want to present the pleasing aroma of the gospel into the lives of others. This is why we advocate for unborn children. This is why we seek to reach out to families through a miscarriage ministry. This is why we seek to reclaim the purity of God's sexual ethic by having strong marriages. This is why we seek to be a neighbor to the foreigner in our land. This is why we see our vocations as callings in our life from God. Friends, we need the Holy Spirit's renewal. We need His guidance. We need His empowerment. We need to be reminded that God's grace to us is that we are heirs of eternal life. We need to be reminded this morning that God desires to use us. He's for us. He's not against us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to respond to what God is is challenging you with or or what he's teaching you. I want to invite you to respond appropriately to how God's working in your life. Maybe this morning you need to call out to God and thank Him or or ask Him to to do this work of refreshing in you. Maybe you need to ask Him to take away the weight of trying to live this life in your own strength and ask Him to strengthen you to, to enjoy living for Him, to actually enjoy being on mission with Him and engaged in mission with Him. Believer, maybe maybe God's calling you to lock arms with a fellowship that wants to have this impact in the city and to be part of this great work that that we seek to do and moving into the city and being a gospel witness to those that that God has placed us in lives with. Maybe maybe God's challenging you this morning to yoke yourself together with a local fellowship of believers so that you might draw encouragement and strength and be strengthened together with the body of Christ. Or maybe this morning, God is prompting you to new life in Him. You've never truly surrendered your life over to Jesus Christ. You've never truly sought God's forgiveness and experienced the new birth, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If any of these describe you this morning, I want to invite you to respond in the way that God is leading you. I'll be down front to pray with you if if you need someone to pray with you and to encourage you. If you need to talk with someone about what it means to be regenerated, to, to, to be given this new birth in Christ, I'd like to speak with you and share this hope of eternal life with you and I'll be down front. We can pray during the service this morning, and then we can talk after about what it means to surrender your life to Christ, to repent of sin and to trust in Him. I want to encourage you this morning. Respond as the Lord is leading you. Don't delay. Pray with me. Father, our desire as your people is to live with the posture of authentic Christian living We want our lives to be a good and visible demonstration of the gospel. And Lord, we confess that we know we can't do that in our own strength. 
we need your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, strengthen us to guard our own hearts and minds against temptation of sin. And Lord, lead us in the way of everlasting life. Use us, Lord, as your servants who, who've laid down our lives, even as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 1, that we are slaves of God. We are your slaves, Lord. We have surrendered our lives completely to you, and we ask, God, that you would use us for your glory. So strengthen us now, Lord, to respond to you with hearts that are fervent and ready and desiring to live and do your will. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.